0: Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On The Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On The Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Thanks. Welcome, listeners, to the inaugural episode of OK Computer. We have a great episode for you today. I sat down with Meltem Demers of CoinShares. We try to get to the bottom of why everybody's dunking on Chris Dixon or attempting to do so, at least on Twitter, about the Web3. I also had a great conversation with Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital and Paddy McCormick of Not Boring Capital on some of the biggest trends in public and private markets in tech in 2021 and what we might see in 2022 and finally i sat down with the brilliant katie stanton of moxie ventures we took a deeper dive into some of those private tech trends and what she is looking for in 2022 so please enjoy
1: Cross River Bank, member FDIC.
0: All right, here we are. This is OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. This is Meltem Demers. You know her. She is the chief strategy officer at CoinShare. She has joined me over the course of 2021 and my partners on On the Tape. But she is now one of the major voices on OK Computer. Welcome very much, Meltem.
2: Glad to be here very much, Dan. You know, I still remember. I I think
0: I misspoke there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's perfect. Oh, you're
0: going to say I still remember back in February when you were dunking all over me. Is that what you're going to say? Well,
2: look, the episode was called Battle of the Boomers and what can i say You, you and i delivered it was spicy
0: It was spicy, which is one of the reasons why you and I have had a lot of great dialogues over the course of this year. And you've actually, you really helped educate me and you've educated so many people, not about specific things as it relates to your views on crypto, but you're kind of opening their mind you are changing their frameworks a little bit. Is that fair to say?
2: And look, I think that's my objective, Dan. I certainly don't believe that I have all of the answers. If I did, I would not be here. I would be on an island somewhere, just (laughs) cashing in. No, but look, one of the really fun things about being in the crypto industry and having been doing this since 2015 when it was just Bitcoin, right? Is I'm learning along with everyone else and I love sharing what I'm learning. I love disagreeing with people. I think in the areas where we disagree, where we have differing perspectives, that's typically where the truth lies. And it's typically halfway between, you know, what we believe to be true and what actually ends up materializing. So I think it's good to have those conversations with people who have a totally different worldview.
0: We just talked about you dunking on me back in February. It seems like everybody is trying to dunk on Chris Dixon. Why is everyone dunking on Dixon on Twitter here? You know, last week, it was December 13th, he tweeted something in regards to a New York Times article about a woman down under who had the at Meta Instagram handle and in the, in the company, I guess, took it back from her briefly. And Chris Dixon said, in Web 2, you are just borrowing things until the actual owners change their mind. Alex Stamos, who's a big on Twitter, former head of tech, I think, and security at Facebook, responds, in Web3, you own something until a 17-year-old in St. Petersburg borrows your 32-byte private key for 100Ms and steals your entire life savings with no recourse. Give it to me here. What's going on here? Because obviously, Chris is working on, you know, protocols about an open web for Web3 going forward, and Alex is still firmly believed in some of the kind of trust and safety mechanisms of Web2.
2: So let's talk about that tension. One of the mental models that I really like is um, it's just re- researcher Carlotta Perez, um, researcher at MIT. She wrote this great book on technological revolutions and financial bubbles. And basically the pattern is there's a new technology that comes out. People get really excited about it. A bunch of capital gets deployed into it. And typically the promise of that new technology is nowhere near, right? the production value that people are assigning to it in the private capital market. So you see these crazy bubbles, crazy valuations. Then people start using this stuff and they realize, wait a minute, none of this is anywhere near the promise of of what we thought it would be. Valuations come down, you see the bubble pop. And then when that happens, the actual building continues and the production value of that technology theme catches up with a paper value. And that cycle begins all over. And in Web3, we see similar thing happening. There's a lot of pontification. You know, I love to call it like the VC thought boys. You know, they're out there. They're pontificating. I'm not a VC. I'm a vibe capitalist, as I like to say. But, you know, you see these think boy threads on on Twitter about how Web3 is going to change everything. And the reality is like we're still in the early innings and there's a lot of things that are just so, so, so early. And at the end of the day, you know, Web3, it still has owners, people own these protocols and the promise of what we're building and the ultimate end vision isn't here today. This is a very long cycle. It will take time and we're just starting to understand some of the potential implications. So I think what you're seeing here again is like there's a whole group of people whose identity, their net worth, the way they conceptualize themselves is 100% based on their success in the world of Web2. So the idea of web 3 in these concepts is, number one, completely unrealistic to them because it totally defies everything they've experienced in their lives and how they've come to define themselves. And number two, I think it's fundamentally threatening because the idea of Web 3 in and of itself is the end of Web 2. And I honestly actually believe that the truth is probably somewhere at the intersection of the two, because at the end of the day, one of the interesting other conversations happening is on the infrastructure side, Web 3 utilizes Amazon Web Services, right? Like AWS goes down, some Web3 services go down. We're utilizing a lot of Web2 infrastructure. We're marketing Web3 via Facebook and Instagram. We're using WhatsApp. So again, I think one of the things we have to realize is there is a fundamental relationship between what's happening in Web2 and what we're building in Web3. And at the end of the day, a lot of the value accretion from Web3 will also go to Web2 companies who are making profits on the back of what people are building in Web3. So I think that, tension is definitely there. And again, I think the truth probably lies somewhere in between. But again, both people in this conversation have a vested interest in articulating a very specific narrative that suits their own sort of portfolio, right? Like look into my portfolio and gaze into my soul is definitely true here.
0: There's none more than at Jack. So Jack Dorsey, he just stepped down a few weeks ago as the CEO of Twitter. We know that he's a founder and he is one hundred percent a Bitcoin maximalist, right? So he tweeted this last night, and this kind of created a bit of a shitstorm on Twitter among crypto Twitter here. So Jack tweets, you don't own Web3. The VCs and their LPs do. It was never escape their incentives. It's always ultimately a centralized entity with a different label. Know what you're getting into. This was really interesting because I'm sure you were watching this play out last night. Chris Dixon got in there a little bit. He says, First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you. We are here, then you win. Jack comes back at him. You are a fun determined to be a Benia empire. That can't be ignored. Not Gandhi. All right, give, give it to me, Meltem here, because you, <laughs> you did not weigh. You did not weigh into this. Some people that you you know and love, and that I know and love, did get in the middle of this, and it was kind of interesting. What's going on right now?
2: I think the truth lies somewhere in between. Right. One of the promises is web, of Web three is hey, instead of capitalists owning these protocols, owning these networks, communities can own them truth again, halfway in between. The reality is it used to be in traditional VC, typically a seed investor would own 20 to 30% of a company. A lot of the largest VC firms in the world, including Andreessen Horowitz, by the way, made their billions, their LPs made their billions owning really large stakes of companies. In Web3, the way that rounds are happening, typically only 10 to 20% of the network will be owned by VCs. So proportionally they own way less, but obviously capital formation from venture capitalists and specialists in the crypto space is a, a reality. Like you can't fund something 100% from the, the community. Bitcoin is sort of unique in this regard. And Bitcoin in and of itself, by the way, is also heavily venture funded. Even though the protocol Bitcoin is not venture funded, it's maintained by volunteers and it has the mining incentive, which brings security to the network. At the end of the day, a lot of the infrastructure built on top of Bitcoin that has helped make Bitcoin so successful and so usable was built by venture backed companies which was backed by Web2 VCs. So again, the truth is somewhere in between. The way that companies and protocols are being capitalized in Web3 is definitely changing, but it's not gonna shift overnight. Like the reality is that investors do add value, they bring credibility and they provide valuable signal. And so I don't think we can like go from the world we're in today flip a switch and all of a sudden everything is funded by community capital, there's going to be a natural sort of evolution. And we're still in the early stages of figuring out what models work best. But at the end of the day, the reality is that ownership models are changing and VC firms own proportionally much less of these new protocols and networks than they might have if they were Web2 or highly centralized companies, as opposed to networks and protocols.
0: So why is everyone dunking on Dixon? Is it that he has that A16Z next to his fund's name because it's this again, you know, I, I'm just curious because you, I mean, you're out there, you're kind of in the trenches and I, you have people who have, that you've met on discord and they have five followers on Twitter and they're probably some of the smartest people working in this space. And so you're not one of these people. And I know you well at this point, I mean, you first, you and I first met in 2017, you were Long deep in this ago. stuff back <laughs> then, you know what I mean? And dispelling a lot of this stuff. So why is it that, is it just that it's this big institutionalized organization in and listen, by all accounts, the guy's brilliant, right? And Dixon's going to wait this thing out. He waited out the 18, 19 period, and he's still here.
2: Chris is lovely. He's a friend and huge fan of Chris's. I think at the end of the day, one of the things people are reacting to is, and I react to this as well, a lot of Web2VCs who made billions of dollars investing in and developing these business models that are highly predatory are now getting into Web3. Chamath is another person like that. He designed the product and the monetization methodology of Facebook. Now he's dunking on Facebook. So I think it's really interesting, right? Like the people who are directly responsible for the dystopian version of Web2 that we have today are now getting into the game and saying, hey, new opportunity. I'm going to reposition myself as a Web3 pioneer. And like you can smell bullshit from a mile away. And that's not not to say this is this is bullshit and that people can't change their perspective, but at the end of the day, there's like zero recognition of the fact that these people have gotten to where they are building and promoting Web 2. And so one of the questions I always ask is like, your cap table is a reflection of who you want to enrich in this world. And if you tell me that you want to democratize finance and make finance better, yet all of your cap table and all of your backers are people who built the modern financial system, how the fuck are you democratizing capital for? How are you going to democratize finance, right? So I think there's this interesting pattern of the people who are in power, the people who have capital to deploy, in many ways are directly responsible for what we have today. And so there's an incongruent sort of perspective there I think again what people are reacting to is you know you can't have it both ways you can't have a business model that's entirely predicated on control and ownership while articulating the benefits of lack of ownership it like that doesn't really resonate because it's disingenuous and so i think again what we have is this disconnect where like the ideology is a bigger part of the narrative than the reality and people are not that stupid right people see the reality so i think on both sides there's just a lot Lot of grandstanding. And again, the truth is somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah. Let's let's hit a tweet of yours. You are prolific on Twitter here. This was a New York Times article yesterday. Tech executives and engineers are quitting Google, Meta, Amazon, and other large companies for what they say is a once-in-a-generation opportunity with crypto. You said, you quote tweeted, so... All of these readers and the paper itself hate big tech, but they also hate talent leaving big tech to work in a new tech industry. I don't understand what you want. I'm so perplexed. Give it to me. Why are you so perplexed here?
2: Well, and look again, this is exactly what I was just alluding to. People are dissatisfied with the current structure of the internet and ownership and censorship. And the New York Times always has its knickers and a twist about big tech, right? And they hate big tech. But at the same time, they cry for censorship and they also hate new tech. And I'm like, okay, so you don't like the current model we have. We're trying to build something different. It's not perfect. It's super early. It has flaws. There's still a lot to figure out, but we're trying to do something different. Yet you also hate this new tech. So I'm not really sure what it is that people want to do other than to just be angry or be be mad like (laughs) there's just this really interesting issue and again what it goes back to is is this issue i think is people have no idea what it is they want. All they know is they don't like what they have today. And one of the things that I struggle with, right, is if you don't like the status quo, then you take steps to change it. That's what I decided to do with my career. That's what I'm doing at CoinShares. That's what I'm doing, deploying capital for CoinShares and trying to build this new ecosystem, which I've been doing for seven years now. We're trying to build something new. Is it going to be perfect? No, but we're going to figure it out. But people who don't like the status quo are mad that we're trying something new, right? And they're like, oh, this all sucks too. It's all the same. Web 3 is bullshit. And I'm like, okay, well, then you fucking do something about it. What are you doing? There's a lot of talking. There's not a lot of doing. And so I have to say, like, all credit to the builders, all credit to the people who take the leap of faith to try something new. Because if we don't try, what what is there? Yeah. And that's what I don't get. What are we doing here?
0: Let's talk about it because, you know, you obviously have a very optimistic view about this and, and you recognize the fact that some things are just not going to work. Some things are not going to be improved upon in a meaningful manner to be replaced or something like that. I think what you just use the term builders. And I think when I look at 2021, I mean, like tech was dominated by crypto centric projects, people rethinking existing processes and that sort of thing. When you think about, and then it was kind of the intersection of creator sort of models and and then thinking about it in a Web3 framework that has something to do with blockchain. So think about NFTs, think about DeFi, think about DAOs. How do you feel that all played out? Did it come on the way you expected? And at the end of 2021, and I realized a calendar change doesn't really matter. How do you think people are going to look back and say, oh, yeah, that was the first pitch in the first inning of
3: this?
2: I think it's always really difficult to pinpoint where we are in the cycle, What I definitely think is is true is one of the things we're seeing that we've never really seen before is for the first time, there is a global tech industry. You no longer have to be in Silicon Valley or New York or Berlin or Singapore. This is global, right? Like yesterday, There's a guy I've been talking to on Twitter. He's under the age of 18, lives in Bangalore, India, and is working on a really cool project. He has a distributed global team, and he's raising capital from investors all over the world. This is a global movement. There are a bunch of anonymous and pseudonymous people in it. We don't know who they are. Like Who you are, your credentials no longer really matter. Anyone with an internet connection and a crypto wallet can now get involved. And I think, again, is it perfect? No. Is some of it um, like snake oil? Absolutely. That's the way new tech always works. Like, there are opportunists who are going to be attracted to it idealists who are going to be attracted to it. And then what gets deployed, what gets built is probably, again, somewhere in the middle. But at the end of the day, I think what we have seen is an unprecedented explosion in participation, in creativity. And the fact is right, crypto is an open distributed network. Anyone can build on the Bitcoin network. Anyone can build on top of Ethereum. While projects and protocols themselves may have specific ownership structures, may have specific power structures that are more akin to Web2 than they are to the promise of Web3, the reality is from a participation perspective from a global capital perspective we've unleashed a torrent of capital formation wealth creation and like collaboration social collaboration the likes of which we've never seen before one really interesting statistic that i'll share is according to tom lee at funstrap 20 percent of new home purchases made in america in the last 12 months were made with crypto gains so when we think about the way that the fabric of society is is changing, if we think about the way employment is changing, if we think about the way that reputation and how we build careers and how we interact with the economy is changing, I think it's really empowering. I think it's really encouraging. And I think for- Can, a, can I push back though yes, for one please, second though
0: about please. that Tom Lee stat? And you know, I love Tom and I'm a huge fan of his. I, I think there's another aspect of it though, Meltem, is that you could have said the same thing back in 2006 that many people are, using the gains in their home, taking home equity loans out, and second homes are being financed that way. Well, that wasn't a good thing. And so one of the things I would just say is that I have been spending a lot of time over the last few months, and I see you on them, and you probably think I'm weird creeping on these some of these Twitter spaces in the NFT space. And I find them fascinating. I find the creativity. I think the collaboration. I think all of the stuff that's going on, the optimism about the communities that are being built, I find it fascinating. The one thing that I don't think that there's enough focus on is that NFTs in particular, let's say these PFP ones where a lot of people are like, you know, I just bought a house or I just bought this. These are financial instruments. And so the one thing that I've just say is that I know there might not be a lot of leverage in the space right now, but if you're using your gains and you're buying a home at inflated prices because all of risk assets, right, hard assets have gone up in value, there is risk to this because at some point we've seen this in Bitcoin. I'll just use Bitcoin as example. This year, we had a 55% peak to try decline. And people get liquidated on the way down, right? And so I, that that's the one thing that I think is really important. I'm putting my CNBC Fast Money hat on. I'm just curious what you think about that. Tom's stat is great, but it only works if everything keeps going up from here.
2: But let me... Perhaps articulate a different perspective. What I think is really exciting, right? Everyone agrees, and this goes back to the New York Times thing we were just talking about. Everyone agrees that we're not happy with the status quo, right? A lot of people are dissatisfied with the shape of things in this country today, socially, politically, from a technology perspective, and from a cultural perspective. People are just fucking unhappy. They do not like it, okay? Here's what's really exciting to me there is a new generation of people who are building not only wealth, right, and gathering financial capital. We've Tremendous social capital. Look at how active crypto Twitter is and look at how powerful the force crypto Twitter is. We have social capital. We have political capital now. People are forming packs, people are running for office. 20% of Americans own Bitcoin. What issues do you think they're going to care about in the next election cycle? They're definitely going to care about policies that American politicians have towards crypto and DeFi and Web3 and the things that they care about. So we have financial capital, we have social capital, we have political capital. For the first time, these four are coming together and mass on a much larger scale than they did in the 2000s to enable us to create meaningful technological, political, social, and cultural change. And I think that's exciting. Is it going to be 100% perfect? Are we all going to be 100% happy with what comes out of it? No. But these people, you have to remember, were extremely ideologically motivated. And I think that's one factor that's missing here that nobody's talking about. Web 2, right, was about Money, right? <laughs> people were yep. making yep. lots of money. Web3, people are really ideologically motivated. We give a ton of money to charity. We collaborate to make really interesting things happen. There's a lot of culture in Web3. And so I'm personally really excited to see what happens when we bring together these really potent forces of financial capital, social capital, human capital, and political capital, and we start to see what we're able to do with that. Again, it's going to take a decade, two decades to play out, but I think it's going to radically alter alter the landscape of not only this country, but the global economy. Right. And that's exciting to me.
0: You're leading the charge. And I see it every day. I see it in Twitter. I see it off of Twitter. You are literally picking up people from wherever they are from their anonymity and you're you're, you're helping them rise up. So I really appreciate that. All right. Last question. We got to get <laughs> out of here. Is 2022 going to be the year of the flippening? Are we going to see Ethereum overtake Bitcoin in market cap for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about is like, listen, I know there's a lot of things being built on Bitcoin, but all. All the exciting things that I at least are gravitating towards, the things that I'm listening, that I'm reading about, seem to be built on blockchains like Ethereum and Solana. And I'm just curious for your take.
2: I don't see a flippant happening. But again, that doesn't mean it, it won't. In my view, Bitcoin offers something unique that no other protocol can. Bitcoin is the only protocol that doesn't have a foundation, doesn't have a marketing department, doesn't have like salaries that pays people, doesn't have tokens that were sold to VCs. Like Bitcoin is the first, and it's really unique in a number of different ways. I think Bitcoin's value proposition is fundamentally different from some of these other layer one blockchains. At the end of the day, like Ethereum, Solana, Avalanche, all these other new L1s, right? What they're creating is they're creating secure financial compute. And the demand for that secure financial compute right now is exceeding the supply. So I think we'll continue to see L1s. We're seeing assets moving cross-chain. Like Ethereum is too expensive for people to use. So people are moving to Solana. Solana is now becoming too congested and too expensive to use. So people are moving to Avalanche. This is a classic sort of computation and infrastructure problem. Bitcoin solves a very different problem. Bitcoin has settlement guarantees with its proof of work mechanism and sort of decentralization promises around store of wealth that no other protocol has. So again, I don't think it's comparing like Bitcoin to Ethereum to everything else. Bitcoin is unique. The value proposition it offers is very unique. And I think, again, a lot of people try to compare and contrast. Like It's not like picking a color for your sofa, right? Like They're not the same. These are very different things. People try to act like block space is is fungible between Bitcoin and other protocols. It's not. Bitcoin's very different in its value proposition. And I think that will continue to be the case, especially as governments start seizing assets, um, as we continue to see more government intervention in different protocols. And also, as we continue to see, you know, as these protocols grow, they have have issues in terms of scaling. And they're, in fact, like fairly centralized, which is totally fine. But- that's not the same as Bitcoin. So in my view, flipping not imminent doesn't mean it won't happen, but I don't think it's going to happen in the next cycle.
0: That was awesome. Listen, you know what? I feel so fortunate every time I have the opportunity to talk to you, and I'm so glad that listeners of OK Computer are going to get to hear you frequently like this, <laughs> uh, Melton, Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great holiday. We'll be back soon. OK Computer, thank you. Stick around for my conversation with Rick Heitzman and Paki McCormick. all right guys let's get into it here because you know what we got just a little bit left in 2021 and i think from an investment standpoint like one of the things that we want to do here is you guys are obviously very focused on private tech markets, you're obviously also very in tune with what's going on in public markets. And there's a lot of intersections that are really important when I think investors kind of consider the goings on here. We're going to break down those topics here. This is going to be the intersection of private and public tech, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3 here. And so when I think about 2021, and you keep hearing this at this point of the year, is that any prediction that you might have made about COVID or about markets or about this at the start of this year is kind of out the window. But I want to start with this. Last week, Time Magazine anointed Elon Musk as their person of the year. Now, what happened with Elon Musk this year? A whole heck of a lot happened. Obviously, he split up with Grimes, and that's very sad. But his stock...
1: That's why he got it? That, That was the most important headline? not burying the lead, are
0: you? I think that got most of the clicks there for Elon this year. But obviously, that rise in the stock where it was trading north of $1 trillion and really encapsulating, what, 80%, 90% of the entire global market cap within the auto space here. And it just is reminiscent of 1999. Rick, you remember this really well. There was a lot of enthusiasm about tech. It was a widely participated sort of thing in the investment community. And what happened to Amazon over the next two, two and a half years or so, it lost 90% of its value. And in that same week, we were tracking Apple as it was about to break or breach the $3 trillion market cap level. So to me, that all felt a little bit of toppiness here. So get in there. I want to hear what you guys have to say.
1: And 20 years ago, Apple almost went away. If Microsoft didn't throw them a life preserver, Apple would have gone away. But some of the things feel a little bit like 1999, looking at kind of the New York NFT and crypto parties from a couple weeks ago that was reminiscent of low business model, maybe no revenue, but the best tequila (laughs) type parties. And, you know, the parties were great a couple weeks ago. The parties were great in 1999. But as you saw maybe in 2000 to 2003, the hangover was pretty severe. So we're not sure whether we're in 99 or 98 or 97 today. And it's probably different for each part of the market. But, you know, when the party's that good, the hangover could be quite bad.
3: First off, I just want to say the fact that Elon Musk is Times Person of the Year is fucking awesome. The guy is single-handedly trying to bring us to space and save this planet. And so I don't know. I saw a lot of the commentary online, obviously. Some people hated it, some people loved it. But the fact that, you know, people have a role model now to look up to who's a little bit out there, but solving really, really, really hard problems is a great thing, kind of market cap aside. So props to Elon Musk.
1: But He's taking the moonshots, right? I mean, that's the person of the year, the person that takes gigantic risk and is getting rewarded by it and is standing up for himself. If you can see the back and forth with him and Elizabeth Warren, he started companies that everybody thought would fail against all odds, taking on the auto industry. And maybe the only thing bigger than that is space, almost lost everything, doubled down on himself. And now being greatly rewarded, I think the person of the year, especially in the U.S. where we hopefully applaud that and celebrate that type of initiative and risk taking is awesome.
0: All right, let's talk about this for a second though, because you know, back in May, Packy, this was one of the first posts that you wrote on Not Boring that really caught my attention. And I was not kind of dialed in as much on some of your Web3 musings prior to this, but you wrote a post called The Great Online Game. And at that point, you basically said, Elon is winning it. Like you talk about post your children, that sort of thing. Explain a little bit of that thought process. He had just gone on SNL. He had just been pumping doge. He had just been fighting with the SEC or fighting with senators. And this, like to your point, the you guy don't give a shit, right? And so what was the inspiration of that post? And explain that a little bit to me. Because I shared that all over the place, that great online game. I thought it was a fascinating take. Where are we now six, seven months later with that?
3: The fun and annoying part about writing Not Boring this year is I feel like I just kind of have been translating things that I'm seeing going on in real time. And I think a lot of those things have kind of just gotten more and more true. The great online game is essentially this idea that we're all playing this giant video game where you're playing as your own avatar and you can make and lose fortunes online. And it really feels like playing this big online game. Elon, talk about someone who just believes that we're in this big simulation anyway, whether that's online, offline, whatever. He views kind of all of the rules as suggestions, maybe. And so that can be physics, that can be the SEC, all these things that seem like kind of like immutable, really hard rules. He's just like, yeah, they're not really rules. And so it's been interesting to watch him play. Some of that's been annoying. I frankly think the fact that he Pumps do so hard is kind of weird and counterproductive to everything else that he's doing, but it all kind of comes with the territory. If you're going to break the rules everywhere, then me as an observer can't pick and choose. The only thing is, is that the chickens come home to roost.
0: That's the one thing. He's playing a game where the stakes are very, very high when you think about it, right? If they're cutting corners as it relates to making rockets, people die. Think about all of the focus on self driving and anytime there was an accident or a fire in one of those cars. So I just feel like he's actually on the
3: razor's edge with a lot of different pitfalls here i think that's the fun part about him and the reason that he can get away with so much think it's probably twofold one is that he's not really cutting corners on the really hard and important stuff so he can like cut corners and mess with the sec and all of that online but when it comes to teslas they're very 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 safe cars there's a crash here and there whatever but for what they're trying to do very safe the rockets I mean, rockets do explode. It's a terrible thing. Obviously, these are unmanned, so not the end of the world. But that's kind of part of the calculation that you're doing. It doesn't seem like he's cutting corners there by any stretch of the imagination. So he's very serious about those things and then messes around with everything else. I think the other is like he's kind of running the Uber playbook at just a massive scale. So the Uber playbook was like come into a city. Get customers to love you and then break whatever rules you want because all the constituents love you and will defend you. He's doing that like on a global scale, which is break all the rules and then millions and millions and millions and millions of people will defend him and hold him up as a hero. So because he has kind of that power at his back, I think he's able to get away with a lot more.
1: Yeah, and it just builds on itself. That builds confidence, which builds more followers, which builds people supporting him. It'll be interesting if someone had to take a Twitter vote for president of the metaverse or whatever that may be, supreme ruler of the next 100 years, that DAO would be quite important.
0: I think Packy anointed him as the king of the metaverse in that great online game here. What I find really fascinating, it's just easy to make comparisons. The Jeff Bezos, the cover of Time, Man of the Year 1999, they used to call it Man of the Year. Now it's Person of the Year, which I think makes a whole heck of a lot of sense here. But also Apple $3 trillion in market cap. It seems like over the last two years, we were on trillion market cap watch. then 2 trillion, you know, it's kind of like skipping trillions here. Those two things happening, in the same week it's pretty fascinating to me. It's like you hear that expression, no one rings the bell at the top. That seems like my ears are ringing a little bit here, guys. Talk to me about that. Rick, you were around during the 2000. We had Y2K. We had this newfound tech utopia that was the World Wide Web. We had just a lot of really innovative things going on. The sentiment, though, overtook the reality of a lot of the tech at the time and its, I guess, broad use cases.
1: Yeah, I think what you're seeing now is the businesses are a lot more real and the opportunities are a lot, lot more real than they were 20 years ago. And so you're seeing businesses evolve, getting real customers, creating real revenue, having real business models. And then the question is, how do you value those businesses, right? So multiples are now several orders of magnitude different from historical norms. If you think companies used to trade at 20 to 30 times earnings. Now they're trading at 30 to 40 times revenue. How do you make heads or tails of it? And what happens for a mean reversion there? I think people have generally not seen, but if you look at tech, if you look at the large tech players, besides maybe Google and what was oversold in Cruteo, People haven't performed this year. As much as everyone's saying the market's great, in the public markets, those haven't performed. And it was a very heady time for all initial offerings, both IPOs as well as SPACs in the first and second quarter of this year. A lot of those have gotten crushed. I mean, if you look at SPAC redemptions, if you look at performance even from the best companies it would be surprisingly down for the average investor. And so what does that mean? Historically, you've seen the public markets lead the private markets down because the cycle time is a lot longer in the private markets and you're not seeing your portfolio mark to market at the end of every day. You're just seeing a tiger term sheet in your inbox and you're feeling good instead of feeling bad. But I think it's definitely a time to lift your head up and be thoughtful and think about where are we in this cycle of where we're recording it, you're going to see Powell come out with probably some talks or even some actions on raising rates.
3: My whole portfolio are those stocks that I think over the long term will be fine, certainly overvalued in the short term, all of that. A lot of people's tech portfolios are down. A lot of the air has come out of that balloon. And everyone who's invested in them was kind of fine, right? Like It's not a catastrophic destruction that you might have expected feeling kind of what was going on in the mania of late last year, early this year. And so I think that's a really healthy thing that prices have come down and things haven't completely blown up. If a little bit more air comes out in the short term, that's a fantastic thing. Yeah, well, here's the thing about that.
0: And so to me, I actually think it's really dangerous at the moment, because if you think about those five or six names that make up $10 trillion in market cap, it's Microsoft, it's Apple, it's Google, it's Amazon, it's Facebook, it's Tesla. Now, they're really masking what has been a crash in high growth and high valuation stocks. And so what I would say is look at the NASDAQ 100. Okay, so those five or six stocks make up about 50 percent of the weight of the index of 100 stocks, and they've all massively outperformed, right? So they're all up 20 plus percent, that sort. of thing. And then if you look, here's a good one. Look at Kathy Wood's ARK ETF, not picking on it, okay? It's basically the NASDAQ without all the good shit, okay? So (laughs) really, and I mean that. And so here's the thing that people, and why do we go back 20 years ago? Because in 2001, after the market had already crashed, people thought, how much lower can these stocks go? They went a lot lower. Stocks can continue to get cut in half. I'm just going to tell you guys, Go look at a Peloton. Peloton, there's $20. It's trading at 40 It could go down another 20 easily, round tripping the entire move from the start of the pandemic. How does that feel down 70% to lose another 50%? And this is what happened in 01 and 02. And I think it's really hard to try to pick bottoms in some of these things. Zoom is another example where that stock could easily be cut in half. It would still be expensive because it was never going to grow into a 50 times sales multiple, that sort of thing. So these are just things that, again, maybe the framework is changed i'd love to hear though from you guys rick you just mentioned keep an eye on the public markets as a leading indicator how do you think the private markets are shaping up into year-end 2021 and what will be most different as we enter 2022 and then we got to get to crypto we got to get to web 3 i love all the fucking snark out there on twitter about vcs underperforming just put web 3 next to your thing you know that sort of thing but give it to me. What's going to happen in 2022? Will we see a bifurcation in the private markets the way we've seen it in the public markets?
1: You're right. The public markets are a leading indicator. The private markets remain very hot. And it's largely because the feedback loop is longer. Also, when you get capital and you raise capital in the private markets, you have usually 10 years. So you're less reliant on that feedback loop. So what we've seen in other corrections is hey, the public markets has said, put a pause on it. So the 20 companies you think are going to go public next year isn't going to be 20, it's going to be 10, and it's going to be the best. And then the second phase of that is, all right, we're taking a pause. Let's go back and look at business models, and let's go back and look at execution and how companies are performing. I think in the public markets, the best example of that's been DocuSign, where I think about 10 days ago, they lost $22 billion of market cap in a day, And it was largely because everything worked out perfectly for them. They had a huge head start. They had the huge brand and digital signatures. Everybody went with the pandemic. So you weren't getting wet signatures anywhere. At the same time, they were still losing a massive amount of money. And then all of a sudden, growth started to slow. And folks said, how if growth is slowing, competition's increasing, and you had the perfect storm, how could you still be losing this money? And the analyst said, what does this business look like on a steady state business model perspective? And the answer, frankly, was sounded a lot like, I don't know, for a $50 billion company, and they lost credibility. And I think whether you're an analyst, a public market investor, or even a private market investor around a partnership table, or wherever it would be, people are going to start asking those types of questions of, what's the end state of an industry look like? What does your business model look like? And what do you look like when you grow up? And folks are going to have to start pointing to something else besides top line growth.
0: Hey, Packy, I want to go back really quickly. So you had a tweet earlier in the week, and it was placing the crypto market cap. We were just talking about these amazing market caps and the concentration in some of these large Tech names. So crypto is, you know, it, it's hovering around 2.2, 2.3 ish trillion dollars. And when you think about that, there's probably a lot of other assets associated that maybe brings that up to three. And when you think about the Russell 2000, which is the small cap index of 2000 stocks, it's not that far off from that entire market here. And you and I were going back and forth on your tweet about this. I think it's really fascinating. You asked me, what would you rather invest in, or what do you think is higher five years from now? Seems like an easy answer to me. I'd love to hear your. Your take on that?
3: Yes, yeah, so I tweeted a chart that was pulled together in two seconds. I forgot to include Google on it, all of that. But essentially it put all of crypto, all of Web3, anything with a token in number three in terms of market cap. And I tweeted Rorschach. So some people can look at that and say like, holy shit, crypto is overvalued, I can't believe it, where are the profits? I can't believe it's bigger than Amazon, all of that. The other group can look at it and say, oh my God, it's so early. If all of crypto is not even as big as the biggest company, then we have a long way to go. I think I'd come out probably on that side. There's a couple of reasons. One, I was 12 years old in 1999, and so I haven't felt this pain before. And my only view on this is zooming out and looking at it and looking at what happened after 1999 and after 2001 and, and how much higher we are now. And so if you can take that patient perspective. I fully expect, and we saw a pullback I might have top ticked with that tweet. It's all a pretty big pullback in the crypto markets over the past week. I'm really not worried about it. More and more people are building. Big companies like Stripe have announced efforts to move into crypto where it makes sense for them. Nike just acquired Artifact, which is a kind of digital collectibles brand. And so there's a lot of just act- activity happening. And so whatever happens in the next year or so in terms of price, like yes, it would feel awesome if my portfolio of Web3 investments were all up. But in a decade, do I think that that number is going to be much, much, much higher? Absolutely. Yeah. And if
0: we're in this institutional adoption phase right now, is it still likely that we're going to have these 50% peak to trough declines? We've already seen it in Bitcoin this year and we came back 150%, but now we're down 30% from those recent highs. And I guess at some point, how does that smooth out a little bit? Do we need more financial products? Do we need ETFs? Do we need things that actually will lessen the volatility? Because I just worry we've had the underlying vol in ETH and Bitcoin. We haven't really seen it yet in NFTs. And this is one of the things that I think is really important because I've spent a lot of time on Twitter spaces over the last few weeks or months and listening to a lot of these really innovative artists who are finally being able to monetize their work and investors in it and people are building communities around it. I know this is something that you're very involved with, Packy, but make no mistake about it. These NFTs, they are financial instruments, right? And so the money that's being put into them, is coming from somewhere else and then if there is downward volatility just wait until they realize how illiquid these assets are it's kind of like piling into a second or third home in 05
3: 06 07 and then needing that money at some point and it's not liquid the best advice that people have been giving this whole time as the nft market was incredibly hot all that was buy things that you want to own, even if they're worth zero, I think there are going to be a lot of people who try to speculate on projects who end up losing their money. And I think that's a totally fine and healthy thing. There's a bunch of NFT funds that are being formed now to buy NFTs. And the thesis on pretty much all of them is the same, which is buy the OG NFTs, buy the CryptoPunks, buy the apes, buy something that is canonical and special. And none of the funds that are putting big money behind it are buying the new projects that might pop 500% in a day. Because if you like the art and you like the community, it's essentially less of an investment and more of a price of admission. Isn't it a bit of a rig
0: game though? You said buy the punks, buy the, it's just celebrities. It's just really, really wealthy people now who are able to do that. And so then the stuff that's going to be the next hot thing, the next punk, the next ape or something like that, you got to be in on that drop. I follow you on Twitter, Packy. I know you're trolling a lot of these stories and trying to figure them out. And so it doesn't seem that accessible to most people at this moment.
3: And I even get left behind, but I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is like, if you want to do it as an investment, go buy a fractional piece of a punk. There are ways to do that also. But the other way to look at it is an asset or a thing that you're buying access to a community and digital art with some upside. And so if you get upside, Amazing, but don't do it for the upside because I think that can be a really dangerous game, except for, to your point, if you're deep, deep in the weeds. I miss everything and I live in this space and I still miss all the big drops. So unless you're full time in it.
1: And I guess as you're saying also, focus on quality. OJ is hard in a world that's under a year old, but focus on the quality, focus on the things that could persist. Joel B top shots, things that are going to be super important for the next 100 years.
3: <laughs> exactly.
1: The thing that really scares me in crypto, though, is the ongoing compounding of leverage. So I think you're going to see a lot of flash crashes there as there's not a lot of regulation on leverage. And whether it's individuals who had a bunch of crypto who are now applying leverage to it to buy more crypto, or newbies coming in via Robinhood who... They haven't really thought through the volatility as they apply leverage. And I think you're going to see a lot of it in 22. Leverage has been so cheap and easy that people are leveraging up everything from Ford apes to multi-billion dollar founder equity positions. And I think as you get more volatility in the stock market or the NFT market, people start to focus on debt. There's going to be tremendous volatility created by the underlying equity swap sloshing around.
3: 100%. I mean, I think for the regular retail investor, you'll get hopefully the back end on that, except for through Robinhood. It's actually with all of the DeFi products out there, it's not simple to figure out how to get a ton of leverage in Web3, unless you're doing it through a platform like a Robinhood where you can trade crypto on margin. But if you wanna go access loans through a DeFi protocol, it's not super simple. So it's not like the least sophisticated people are out there getting leverage on their crypto trades, but agreed. I think that's that's a bigger, I personally have zero leverage.
1: You could even see the most sophisticated people who go down to some is good, more is better. And, you know, even if you look at volatility in the stock market, sophisticated public market CEOs who are leveraging the thing they should know the most about, usually their own company, have blown up. Because whether they maybe believe a little bit too much or don't want to sell and diversify because it's been so good to them and leverage comes so easy, that's where you get scared. That creates both buying opportunities and volatility as you're going to see flash crashes and you're going to see assets that irrationally drop, but you're also going to see assets that irrationally drop and go away.
3: The way that I'm personally playing it, and obviously none of this is financial advice, is to be unlevered and have cash available when things inevitably dip and crash short-term. But every time ETH goes below $3,800, I have a bid. And I think there's that group out there as well that appreciates those core assets. Paki, let's talk about that real
0: quickly, because to me, I find, and you and I have talked about this, and Rick and you and I have talked about it separately, I just find the story for ETH so much more interesting as I think about it from a technology standpoint. I know, Packy, you feel very similarly, Are we gonna have the flippening? Is it happening in 2022? You obviously wrote this great piece, Solana Summer in August. You wrote a deep dive in Ethereum. It was called Own the Internet back in May. If you haven't read those people, go back and read them. You were not making a case for one over the other or versus Bitcoin, but really what you were talking about, all of these buzzwords that we've been talking about for the last 10 minutes, NFTs and DeFi, all this stuff is being built on these smart contract platforms. Are we going to finally see the flippening?
3: I'm dumber than the people who spend all of their time in the actual crypto markets on this stuff, because I'm like, yeah, I'd love to see ETH flip Bitcoin. It's more useful and there's more interesting stuff being built on top of it. And, all. and then I talk to people who are actually in it and they're like, there is probably nothing worse that could happen to the market than the flippening, because if the core thing that is supposed to be the store of value is no longer as interesting, everything else is kind of built on top of that and things start to crumble. I think the more flipping happen, the less stable any one thing might seem. So while like, you think that Ethereum is much, much more valuable as, as a blockchain, I'm not smart enough to understand all of the second and third order effects of an Ethereum flipping Bitcoin.
0: Hey, yeah, Rick, you obviously made your bones in Web2 here. You're very focused. FirstMark's made plenty of investments in the crypto landscape over the last, call it five to 10 years, probably accelerating a bit towards the end of 2021. What are some of the blockchain-based technologies that you guys are really focused on? And do you expect yourself to see these investments accelerate in 2022?
1: I think we're going to start to see a shakeout. And people are going to, as you see more volatility, As people are aware of, hey, I'm not making money on everything, maybe I should think a little harder. We tend to focus on projects that do jobs, no different than we focus on companies that do jobs that make everybody's life easier. So I think on the blockchain, obviously facilitating financial transaction at a fraction of the cost creates a huge ROI. Projects like Helium, which enable a decentralized Internet at a fraction of the cost and do a job with a positive ROI for everybody involved, make a lot of sense. There's also projects in quantum computing and things that are really making a difference in the world. And we tend to shy away from things that tend to create assets that are speculative rather than efficient and job doing.
0: Packy, is there something under the radar that you think you're going to be spending a lot of time writing about,
3: thinking about investing in, in early 2022? I think I agree with Rick on that thesis generally. In Web3. I think this is going to be a really interesting year. What I hope to write about, and I'm going to spend the next couple of weeks reflecting and thinking, and then I really just play it week to week and figure out what's interesting. What I hope to write about is a lot of those use cases. And I don't think they're going to look like old use cases and they'll be the same thing plus tokens. That's not what I'm looking for. But use cases that really do start to add a lot of value to people's lives. A couple that I've invested in recently that I think are particularly interesting, a company called Sound XYZ is doing music NFTs that let people buy the artist's work kind of upfront to support them, the artists will still be able to play that on Spotify and do all of that. But it's just one way of filling out under the demand curve, the people who really appreciate artists even more. So I, I love that. And then something called parcel, which I absolutely love, which makes real estate more liquid and investable. It doesn't tie to any of the underlying asset, but ties to the data on particular markets. So right now, or you know, when they launch, you might be able to go long Soho and short a particular neighborhood in San Francisco. Over time, you can get more and more specific.
1: That is investment advice: long New York, short San Francisco. <laughs> oh, that yeah yeah. The
3: SEC come at me. I'm going to pull an Elon here, but that is <laughs> investment advice: short short S F. We're all New Yorkers on this call, but stuff like that, where I think that's really interesting. One, the speculation on that is fun and creates another liquid market. But if your biggest asset is the value of your home, the ability to hedge that is a really useful thing to have at your disposal. So I think projects like that are going to be really interesting. All right, listen, guys, we could have done this all day long. We're going to
0: check back hopefully before year end and make some predictions for 2022. I'm sure they will all be stellar as we look back on them at the end of 2022. But listen, this was our maiden launch. We're going to try out a lot of different things. We're going to talk about a lot of different things. We're going to push back on a lot of different things. So I'm really glad you guys could be here. I've learned a lot from both of you about investing, about tech and where tech is going. So I really appreciate you being a big part of OK Computing.
1: A lot is a strong word,
0: Dan. (laughs) Fair enough. That's true. Listen, thanks a lot, guys. And if I don't see you, have a great holiday. Happy holidays.
1: Happy holidays, everybody.
0: And when we come back, my conversation with Katie Stan. Katie, we got to talk markets here. One of the things that we're trying to do in OK Computer, we're going to talk about the intersection of public tech, of private tech. We have a whole group of really amazing co-hosts and contributors. And we're also going to focus on the intersection between Web 2, which we all know that's the web that we're on. Those are the things that we're using every day. And then this new buzzword, Web 3. And I think you and I are probably still getting acclimated to some of these new themes and the ethos of Web 3. So we have some really, really dialed in people to help us figure that out but let's start with this markets okay we're really we're coming into the end of the year it's been an amazing year for risk assets all different sorts of risk assets as you think about them me as a public markets guy i've been talking about this for a while there's been a lot of disconnects, specifically as far as technology stocks are concerned. And I really want to get your sense of what you think about that. You've worked at some of these massive tech companies. Now you're an investor in disruptive, innovative private tech companies but right now what we've seen in 2021 is massive amounts of money when I say trillions I'm not being glib trillions of dollars in just the last few months have flowed into some of the biggest names some of the biggest winners of web one and web 2 whereas a lot of these disruptive innovative tech companies in the public markets have absolutely gotten killed and I mean literally they've crashed okay when I talk about some of the breadth some of the data here it's just astounding so I I wanted to get your sense of when you see that sort of activity in public markets, crowding in the biggest, let's say, safest names, and then devastation in some of the, I guess you'd call them higher growth, but more speculative, higher valuation names. What does that mean to you? And are you starting to see some of this kind of seep into the private markets?
4: Absolutely. And first of all, thank you so much for having me here. I'm very honored and love what you've been building. So thank you so much for having me. The private markets have been fascinating to watch as well. And I'm a relative newcomer. I'm a beneficiary of this increased movement. And it used to be all the venture capital were going to the old established firms. And what we've seen over the past five to maybe eight years, all operators or individuals from the VC firm starting new firms either in crypto, either in multi-stage. Now we're seeing a ton in Web3. And so just seeing this evolution and so much capital still pouring into the private markets, I think there is some irrational exuberance. (laughs) And there's also a lot of excitement about the potential. And what if you can get into these companies way earlier? By the time things are in the public markets, they're pretty priced in. And there's always this information advantage that you have in the private markets. And so that's why you see the tigers coming in, the bigger VC firms, not just doing, say, growth and opportunity funds but they're trying to go all the way down to seed as well so yep. there's just so much capital there's so much enthusiasm and there's so much opportunity
0: but it's funny they provide capital but like someone like yourself and moxie I mean you're providing something a lot more than that you're getting to know these founders at early stages they're really taking on big problems your focus on climate tech on health tech and, and really focused on maybe some underrepresented groups I think it's really important it's one of the things that you and I have really connected on because I think for for us to be able to find people who that's your focus. I don't think some of these big growth funds and that sort of thing who are going downstream when they used to invest at, you know, kind of much loftier valuations, what do they bring other than money? Do you know what I'm saying?
4: Right. I mean, this, first of all, is a founder's market. Founders can get capital anywhere. We've seen that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And so there have been so many more types of Mm -hmm. operators who come from engineering backgrounds, product backgrounds, marketing backgrounds, who have assembled these funds and assembled angel checks even. And going to these founders and saying, like, you can get capital from all these places. It can be very, like, passive capital or it can be very active capital. And if you want active capital, if you take capital from us, we can help you with pricing, with go-to-market, with introductions, with recruiting. Recruiting tends to be the biggest thing that founders need, especially at Seed, right? How do I hire our first CTO, our first marketer, and so on? So that's where funds like Moxie come in, I think, where we can add a lot of value. And we're in this business not just because we want to place a lot of bets, but we want to roll up our sleeves and help companies. All
0: right. Well, let's talk value because you just talked about the access to capital. It's there and there's a lot of competition. And that means that valuations are going to go up. But here's a headline from the information last week that just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks here. And I, and I love it. And I want to hear a, There's a quote that I'm going to read from the founder of this company, right? The year startup investors and founders went ape over crypto. All right. So you just mentioned Web3. And we know that that as far as the VC community, that's kind of a big buzzword right now. And it kind of means blockchain. It means crypto. It means disintermediation of a lot of things, but they're talking about in this article, a founder of a company called Artblocks named Calderone. All right. And here's a quote from Calderone. I love that name. He goes... I'm the first to admit it. I actually don't know what I'm doing. I'm just blindly navigating what feels like a pirate ship with all these crazy people hanging on it.
4: Sounds like a great metaphor for venture. Everyone's faking it.
0: All right. So <laughs> is that it right now? It's just fake it What till you, make, fake it till you make it. And so are you seeing that sort of like ethos among a lot of founders here? Because to me, again, there are VC firms tripping over each other to have access. And I'm not going to speak to his fund. I don't know anything about his company and what he's raising and what the valuations, are, but does that make you a little nervous when you start seeing headlines in very prominent tech rags like that and quotes from from founders like that?
4: It actually doesn't make me nervous and here's why and I'm going to date myself here. Yeah. So I remember in the late 90s, the first Web point or Web 1.0 companies were evolving, and it was so exciting. Wow, I can read stock quotes on the web. Wow, I can buy things over the internet. I can get a book delivered to my house in two weeks. That's amazing. And we didn't really know what monetization would look like, but we knew there was something there. We couldn't have imagined what it would look like in five to 10 years, but we knew that there was something there. And I think that's what everyone is feeling here too, you know, what will Web3 bring us? It'll bring us more control over our data. It'll give us more security and more privacy and a lot of these other things, which we need. We've seen sort of what happens when you don't have control over data and you have too many things centralized, right? So I think people know that there should be something better. We don't know exactly what it is, but let's skate to where that puck is going and try to be at the forefront of that movement and not wait too late. Well, how do you feel behind.
0: like, are you have you invested in some companies in your first fund? For instance, I know you just launched your second fund this past year that are pivoting a bit, like because of some of these buzzwords, because of, you know what I mean? Some of the excitement and the potential to kind of get higher valuations, you know, that's, are, are they pivoting or are you just seeing most founders kind of stay in their lane a little bit?
4: To be honest, I'm seeing a lot of founders maybe use new language, not necessarily pivoting. And I think the two big trends that we've seen have been either in crypto and in climate. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of founders see the opportunity, certainly with crypto, a lot of that with economic empowerment and economic upside. And I think on the climate side, it's like do or die. I mean, I'm in New York City this week. It is 65 degrees hating it. It's terrible. It's (laughs) December. Sorry.
0: I mean, You came here (laughs) wanting like a a snowy Christmas. I wanted a white Christmas. And like,
4: but I mean, yes, it's very comfortable outside, but it's terrifying. And I think we're seeing a lot of founders seeing that too. So in the crypto, sorry, in the climate community, I kind of joke with my climate friends, like, I feel like we need to rebrand this a little bit. Let's call it climate three or something Uh, and give it like a little jazzy name. But it's really important. that we. You make a great
0: point. I mean, you moved from San Francisco to Boulder, California, between the wildfires and just some of that bad weather. Weather out there, and then when you move to Boulder, you're gonna have a season. You're gonna have a ski season come really soon. I'm just telling you where everyone's gonna be like, there's no snow. And a couple of seasons ago, do you remember that? I mean, so and there's you got no snow coming. now. Yeah,
4: if there were fires in Boulder or outside of Boulder in December. Yeah. it's that warm and that dry, yeah. and we should all be very scared. And we should all be working on solutions that are going to both address and help us mitigate climate change.
0: I want to go back to this one. So the, here's a tweet from Kara Swisher. Which love Kara. We, 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 we both, love Kara. We both know and, lo- and, and love Kara. Um, so she says this, and I love when she does this. She's so busy. she got all her great podcasts, and she's doing so many great things. And she used to report a lot more on tech, right? And right. so when she does this, this tweet I, I think got me going here. It says, so a very smart tech exec texted me this thought below, and I tend to agree. She's like, I'm going to write about web three noise and how it feels like very early web one this week. So would love thoughts on this. Here's the quote from the unnamed tech exec. If the web thing weren't being driven by total assholes, people might be more open to it. I'm just saying, all right, so you got to go look at this tweet and you got to go look at her replies in there. And she goes back and forth on this thing. What does that mean to you? I'm not going to ask you to call out your web three friends as, a-holes, but I'm just curious, what do you think, is there like a different sort of mentality versus investing in Web2 platforms or Web2.5 or these Web3 people or NFTs and the Miami and all this sort of stuff, is it getting a little a hole
4: There's a lot of hype and um, there's a lot of enthusiasm and there are different types of people speaking out on behalf of the Web3 community. I'm not sure they're quite representative, but I've seen a lot of emerging and really smart people and a lot of young is often Women yeah. investors. So Jamira Herrera at Reach Capital. She's a spectacular investor. She's a spectacular thought leader. She's written quite a bit about Web three. There's Lee Jin who writes a lot about the creator star, economy. Absolute star, rock star. Yeah. Like these young women, peel apart the loud, broey, like noisy guys, maybe, and listen to these women because they they see this. Lee Jin has been talking about this for years and years and created a, an entire fund around this which is really impressive so just seeing like Maria Salamanca who's out on Shackle Adventure she too all right, i got to like ask you this yeah, though
0: because I saw you like Lee was in, in the Andreessen machine right and she left and she's literally become a superstar she's educating people you know she's all over the place if you look at her Twitter I've happened to meet her and and been so impressed with like the groups of people that she puts together and how she really is trying to pull people up right for all intents of, I listen to her podcast podcast. podcast. You just tweeted the other day, and this was kind of big news. Again, someone leaving the Andreessen machine, Katie Hahn. It sounds like she's a friend of yours. She was co-running their crypto fund multiple funds with chris dixon who's an amazing thought leader and she's a former operator coinbase a former regulator what does that mean to you like these women are going out and and again i don't mean to sound patronizing by calling them women but five years ago kara swisher was writing stories where are all the female entrepreneurs or where's all the money going to female entrepreneurs that sort of thing
4: yeah i mean three words watch these women Right? I mean, Katie Hahn, crypto queen. Yeah. I love Katie Hahn. Like whatever she tells me to do, I listen. She's a Moxie LP. I'm Wait, very honored gonna start, for that. Are you
0: going to start telling me the, the, the inside scoop? Maybe. All right, fair enough.
4: I just hope she calls it Katie coin yeah. and we can all benefit from that. Yeah. I think that would be awesome. But yeah, you see these women who are at funds and they know what they're doing. They know how to build these things. They have a vision. They know how to execute and they should be building these new firms. And so I'm really thrilled for Katie. I'm thrilled for all these women starting new things. And even the creator You see early adopters. So Gina Bianchini, who started Mighty Networks, and she is the queen of the creator community and has started this and did this for the past five to 10 years. So a lot of these women are on the forefront and they may not be as noisy as some of these other guys, but um, but they are the ones to watch. What do
0: you think, uh, not just as ventures being decentralized, you know, you are, you have a partner, Alex. I mean, you guys are not some big behemoth, but you're really a hands-on sort of shop. This whole notion of like the kind of soul GM, uh, Packy McCormick, who, you know. So you, smart. Yeah, he's so smart. I mean, and he, you know,
4: obviously. Get his newsletter, everybody. I, I,
0: no, not boring. So it, it's amazing. And you and I were talking, I think when he wrote a post on Not Boring in the fall about being a solo GM, and he just joined Chris Dixon, I think as an advisor to that fund. But again, there's a lot of people who are like, I don't want to be plugged into the big machine. I can use all of these tools that I have access to through the creator to meet whoever I want to kind of associate. Is that going to be a big trend adventure, you think?
4: I think so. I think, we have seen the data that solo GPs and emerging managers tend to outperform the existing seed funds. And part of that is just survival. You want to go on and do the next one. And I know, I mean, I don't think I ever worked harder than when I started Moxie because it was just me at the beginning. I was a solo point of failure. I had to just keep working and hustling and building and networking and supporting these founders. And now I'm lucky enough to have Alex Redder with me. And he used to lead all of engineering at Twitter. Fun fact, he had hired the new CEO at Twitter. Mm-hmm. So that's great. And, you know, he comes from a very different mindset from me. He's an engineer, he's, yeah. and he looks at things very differently. And then we hired a woman named Ina Hallulu, who's a student at Wharton, and she's phenomenal. Now having all these extra people, I mean, all these <laughs> two other people, but it really makes a big difference. And I think sort of the scrappiness that I see with a lot of my collaborators and venture, especially at Seed, the homebrews of the world, the Freestyles, the Animos, the Harlem Capitals of the world—it's so fun to work together because we know how hard it is to build these companies and support these companies and helping them grow and achieving their goals.
0: Here we are—it's towards the end of 2021, and we're still really focused on this pandemic and some of the themes that helped get us through tech themes, whether it be technology enabled, you know, work from home and and distributed work and all these sorts of things. We really thought that might have. Been flash in the pans, but we're still focused on these. Are any of these that you think are here to stay? That they're really going to be part of kind of the way we work from here on out, or, or investment themes that are really going to be very like suitable for years to come, not just pandemic sort of things.
4: I would say the biggest category that we've seen and that we'll continue to invest in are things that allow us to do work, healthcare, education remotely. So for example, we invest in a company called Daily. That is a video and audio chat API that you can use for doctor's offices, for work, for school. So we continue to see platforms like that We have also seen all the challenges with supply chains. Um, One of the companies we invested in is called Fuse Inventory, which is more modern-day supply chain software. Um, So we're excited about things like that. And we're also, you know, healthcare is going to continue to be important. And what are the ways that we can modernize our healthcare system? So looking at AI solutions, we have one company called Vistapath, which is AI for pathology. Um, And the last area that I think we've seen, that is not necessarily related to COVID, but what we've seen over the past number of years is just climate change. So what are the tools that we can both adapt to and mitigate climate change?
0: Yeah, so it's interesting because again, just bookending this conversation, how we started as a public markets guy, I, I crack myself up a lot as you know, Katie here. <laughs> I tweeted something. I don't know you why. Funny. I was looking, well, funny, funny how? Do I amuse you? Um, that's <laughs> you get that reference. But a few weeks ago, I can't remember. I was just kind of looking. I was getting preparing for fast money, and you know, I, I kind of do that really quickly, right before we go on and everything like that. And I was looking at so I was looking at work from home, which was Zoom, work out from home, which is Peloton. I was looking at teledoc, so medicine from home, okay. And then School from home, Chegg. All of those stocks. Love Chegg. All, uh, amazing companies. All of them are actually probably executing pretty well in a difficult environment. Their stocks right. are down 60 plus percent. Some of them more. So I was calling it a Niedermeyer market. Work from home, dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Teladoc from home, dead you know, work out from you get it. right? But that's an animal house reference. But my point is, is like, so the public markets are having none of it. I mean, they are over it. They've moved on from those themes. And so it's really interesting to me because there are going to be amazing companies that are going to actually, because of this awareness of deglobalization and supply chain issues and that sort of thing that are going to be born out of this period. And you don't have to focus on the names that are doing really well in 2020 and not doing well in 2021 in the stock market. There's going to be a lot of opportunities, I think, for companies who've maybe left these companies or left big manufacturers or shipping companies are going to figure out these problems?
4: Right. I mean, I'm still bullish on a lot of those companies. I mean, I think they are here to stay and there has been some correction, which is to be expected. So I'm still pretty bullish. And all those companies that you mentioned are extremely well run. And these are leaders that are thinking about the long term. And so markets will market, I guess. (laughs) How do you
0: think about just lastly, Katie, you know, when you're thinking about the stock market, you worked at some, again, you worked at some of these companies that were publicly traded when you were there. And there's always this obsession with the stock market and what's going on with individual names. How much does the sentiment in public markets kind of seep into the way you think about risk-taking in the private markets?
4: It's so different. Most of the founders that we work with are at the earliest of the stages. And so they're just getting started. And maybe a public market entrance is perhaps 10 years away, you know, as early as maybe seven years. So they are in a survival mode. They're trying to get quarter to quarter. They raise enough money to last a year. And a year is probably a really good metric because you want to have some kind of scarcity that you don't spend it too fast. But you also don't want to just take years and years to get to product market fit, right? So most of the founders that I talked to don't even think about public markets. It's usually like we work very closely with them until they get to product market fit, they're ready for series A, they're ready to use that capital to start growing and scaling those businesses. Maybe that helps them get to series B and then C and then they're on their way, on their way to some kind of of an exit of some sort but um, most of the founders I know don't think about this at all.
0: Well, I'd say they're very lucky to have you at such an early stage of their journey. All right, last thing I'm the here. lucky one. No, well, <laughs> I am. That's, a great, that's a great partnership then. The last thing i say, are there any under the radar themes? Like coming into 2021, I don't think anyone thought that this craze around non-fungible tokens was going to be a thing. And you think about the ecosystem that's been created around them, the community, and that just like, you know, look at all of what's going on in social. I mean, a lot of people are like, I don't care about the value do I impute value from my identity, my association with this. PFP that I have on my Twitter feed or, you know, like that's a huge theme. There's so much legs in that, whether a crypto punk is worth a million dollars or worth a dollar, who knows, but there's a lot of people who paid a dollar for them in ETH and feel like there's a lot of value, right? So I'm just curious, are there any under the radar themes that you're seeing it could be in climate tech, health tech, or something like that, that might bubble up in 2022?
4: My biggest take here is that, and again, I'm biased that it is going to be in climate tech. I think we'll start to see a flicker of climate unicorns. I think we'll start seeing a lot of these solutions work and start to really scale and make a meaningful difference. And I think most of these innovations will happen outside the United States, particularly in emerging markets where they need it the most.
0: All right, Katie, that was a great conversation. I'm so, so happy to have you as part of this OK Computer project that we're working on. Have you as a co-host. I hope we can do it face to face as much as we can.
4: I'm so honored to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks once again to Current and Masterworks for sponsoring this episode of OK Computer. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps people find our show. And we want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal anytime. Follow and connect with us on Twitter at OK Computer Pod. We'll see you next time.